Morning. You want to open up to Revelation chapter 13. Even though we're just a little over halfway through the book, we're probably about more like three quarters of the way through um, the series just because it's going to pick up the pace here. For the most part, we're going to do um, one chapter a week. But this week is going to be a little bit different because basically today, um, my plan is just to set a lot of background. And just this is going to be kind of one long introduction to go over the whole chapter next week, basically. Just because there's so much here that I feel like I have to set the stage for it to even really make sense um, and to fully to carry you along with me to understand how did I get here, why is this section, why are we landing here in, in terms of what it's saying. So this whole week is going to be kind of a little bit different. Um, this particular chapter, chapter 13, there's a lot of details in here, and so we can just trust that God is... Sovereign, and he said that there's a blessing for reading the book of Revelation, and so there, part of that is digging into some of the Old Testament references and things like that to feel, fully understand it. So, but I, what I'm hoping is that it'll help you in terms of larger picture, like zooming out and looking at the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation and understanding the larger narrative. Um, but it is going to be a little bit detailed here. So just, there's going to be a lot of turning today to different Old Testament passages. So that's just kind of a caveat here. (laughs) Um, All right. So before we read Revelation 13, at least the first part of it, I'll start by giving an introduction here. This is something I've said before, but genre is important, you know. And I think sometimes... We, as evangelical, American evangelicals, take the Bible and we oversimplify it. And one of the questions you should ask as you're studying a book or a passage is, what genre is this? Is this poetry? Is this wisdom literature? What is this? And we can be thankful that the Bible has all different types of genres of literature here. And it's kind of like books in your library. You've got lots of different books. You've got, you may have a car manual or a biography, and you read those very differently. And if you picked up a biography and you tried to treat it like a car manual, you would be very frustrated. Why aren't there instructions here? I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. This is, I can't do what this person did. Um, that's not what a biography is for. A biography isn't step-by-step instructions on how to do this or that. If you read Truman's biography, you can't necessarily become president. (laughs) That's not what it's for. And the same with the Bible, um, that we can get frustrated because we either oversimplify it or, or treat it like that. Some people do treat the Bible like a car manual. Just, I need one verse today, just one thing to do, and that's it. That's all I need. And that can be difficult. There's chapters in the Bible where the goal is not just to give you one 
here's this one thing you need to do today. There are other books like Proverbs, which basically are full of that. Every verse is basically a one, do this, you know, know this, think this way. And I'm glad that there's lots of different genres here. Now, one type of genre that, or one thing we want to get out of the Bible that we, I think, maybe overlook is that the Bible is a narrative. If we're honest, we might have wanted the Bible to be more like a car manual, right? I just wish I just had step by step. You know, just do this, do this, do this, do this. But we've got a narrative. The Bible is a narrative. It's teaching us through a story, a history, but also not just a history, more than a history. In the book of Revelation specifically, as we read it, this is not a car manual for the end times. Figure out who's the Antichrist, etc., etc. This is to teach us. If I was to describe it, it might be more like a play. And if you were going to read a play, and let's say you were going to act in a play, how would you approach that? You would want to know the characters. You would want to know, well, what character am I supposed to be playing in this play? And what's my motivation? And what what are my feelings about this and that situation? And that's kind of what the book of Revelation is in a way. It's putting the scope of history, though it's, it's in this fantastical language, and giving you all the big players and their motivations and how we should feel and think and where we fit. Though it's different than a play because... You know, we're really living through it, even though it's given in kind of a fantastical language. How this is relevant is we're a part of a bigger story, the story of creation, what God's doing from beginning to end, and we need to know where we are. We need to know what's going on. And this book, in almost, in almost a unique way, is giving us that. It's giving us the big picture of what's going on in the world and in creation. And though there might not be a specific application today, I think that it can help us, one, to see the overall narrative of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, but also where we fit in our lives. Okay. Let's read here just a few verses to start, and then we're going to read a bunch more out of the Old Testament. Revelation 13 one, starting in verse 1. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's feet, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound. But its wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast, and they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? Okay, that's where we'll stop today, and we're going to do some Old Testament background. Again, by way of review, the book of Revelation is the revealing, or the revelation of Jesus Christ. And if you want to understand, especially these difficult sections more uh, difficult sections, you ask, how is this contrasting or pointing to or teaching us something about Christ? And in every single case, especially the, you know, the more uh, 
evocative images that you think of from Revelation, like the dragon and the prostitute and all these, the beast here, the way to understand them all is how are they contrasted with Jesus? How are they contrasted with Jesus? And even the, if you think that way, you can actually understand even the outline of Revelation and know what chapters go where. Because if the point of the prostitute is to contrast Jesus, the next chapter is about the bridegroom. If they're talking about a marriage supper of the Lamb, there's the wicked city Babylon contrasted with the New Jerusalem, which is you know, the holy city, the, the bride of Christ. And so all these things are intentionally placed as juxtapositions. And when you think of Revelation, many times people think of this word Antichrist. Antichrist. The New Testament does not use the word Antichrist in the book of Revelation, but in other books. But the idea of it definitely is in the book of Revelation. All these images are negative images, negative mirror images. They're like Jesus, but they're so unlike Jesus that it teaches us something about him. The beast and the lamb, the prostitute and the bride versus the bridegroom, um, this, the unholy city and the holy city, all these are antichrists. They're like Christ, but they're so unlike Christ that they're teaching us something about him. And that's the way the beast is. This is all background here. Okay. I'm going to tie all this together, but we're going to jump around first. There's a very clear reference here in Revelation 13 to an Old Testament prophecy. So if you want to just turn with me to Daniel 7. I'm going to read quite a bit here from Daniel 7 and see if you can catch the connections here. Daniel chapter 7. I'll start in verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head. Visions of his head as he lay in bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring the great sea, and the four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. And then I looked. Its wings were plucked off and it was lifted from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of the man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear, it was raised up on one side and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth and it was told, Arise and devour much flesh. And after this I looked and behold, another, like a leopard with four wings, of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it, conquering, and the, given to it. And after this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful, exceedingly strong, and it had iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces, and stamped what was left with its feet. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up from among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots, and behold... In this horn were eyes, like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. And then if you want to jump down to verse 15 in Daniel 7. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. And I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. And he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall rise out of the earth. 
But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. Okay. This Old Testament section clearly is being referenced. Not only do we have the word beast, we have the same animals that are described in this beast in, in chapter 13. We have the, you know, the leopard, the teeth of iron, the bear, all these things combined into this one image. And we know in Daniel chapter 7 what these beasts are representing. They're representing kingdoms. It doesn't say this in the text, but the first, the lion was Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar. Remember how Nebuchadnezzar was the king and then he lost his mind. God took it away from him because he, and humbled him. And it talks about that. He was, he was, he was given a mind like, to stand, uh, in verse 4 it says, two feet like a man and the mind of a man was given to it. That's referring to Nebuchadnezzar after he lost his mind and came back. The second beast is like a bear. You remember Daniel again sees both these firsthand. After there's that writing on the wall, the Medes and the Persians come and conquer Babylon. That's the Medo-Persian Empire. And that is the second beast, the one like a bear. The third is Greece, or Alexander the Great. It's a leopard, speedily conquers. Uh, The reason... Four keeps coming up as after he died, the kingdom was divided into into four after his death, and then the final one with the iron is is definitely Rome. And in Revelation thirteen, it's kind of a weird combination of all these because Rome was kind of a weird combination of all these empires. The reason this is important is. When first century Jewish readers were reading this, they would immediately think of this Daniel situation. They would know that these images, oh, I, oh, I remember that. And they would remember the significance that this was pro- prophesying these kingdoms. And there's something that I want to take time to really introduce here. Again, this is just kind of a long background introduction. But I think it will help us as we read all of Scripture is this beast is is an antichrist. It's a negative image of Christ. It's something that is in many ways like Christ, but yet is unlike Christ. We've got all the nations worshiping just like they're supposed to do with Jesus. We've got, later on in the chapter, there's going to be a mark given just like that the saints are going to be sealed. The servants of the beasts are going to, are going to be sealed with a mark. It's going to be a king that rules the world in a way. Um, and same with Jesus. Jesus is the king that rules the world. But you see at the end of Daniel 7 what happens. It's basically the point of these sections, these telling, prophesying about all these kingdoms is they're going to be temporary. But there's going to be one who comes, the Most High, is going to receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. They're just temporary. That God is going to ultimately conquer that leads into this thing that's really, really important that I feel like we have to take time to maybe backtrack a little bit and understand before we get into this. I wonder how many times you've heard the phrase, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. And for kids, for you kids, um, I know the adults already know this, but Christ was not Jesus' last name. Christ is a title that he's given. If we're going to talk about the Antichrist, we need to know what Christ is. 
And there's a few things that I really want to get across that make it really clear why there's this contrast here. And it's something that we might not immediately, when we think of Jesus, Jesus Christ, we might not immediately think about. But it's definitely something that the first century Christians and the first century Jewish um, believers knew and understood. And that is that Jesus Christ means that Jesus was the Messiah. But specifically, the Messiah was going to be a king who conquered all these kingdoms. I'm going to, you're already in Daniel, so if you'll just jump over two chapters to chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. I'm not going to read every reference, but I'm, I want you to see this for yourself and to really know this, that when you hear the phrase Jesus Christ, that in your mind you think King Jesus or Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the King, the promised King. It's really important as we go through Revelation that it's very, very clear. Um, and especially to understand the, the section that we're in. Okay, Daniel 9, let's read verses 25 to 27. One other point that I want to make here before we read this is the word literally is anointed. The Messiah is the one that's anointed. And the reason that that should make you think of a king is there was only two types of people in the there was two types of people that were primarily anointed in the Old Testament. The kings were anointed and the priests were anointed. But in terms of the Messiah, Jesus was both. He was a king and a priest. But in terms of the Messiah, almost all the prophecies talk about him being anointed in terms of as a king. So this word for Christ is literally the word anointed. When you read the word anointed here in these verses, that's the word for Christ, for Messiah. Verse 25, Daniel 9.25 Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build up Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there will be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with the squares and a moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of, of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be a war. Des- de- desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate, but the, decree, but the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Okay. To simplify this, <laughs> originally I had a chart to go through the weeks, but I decided... I'm not going to go through the weeks because it's already kind of uh, a lot of information. So I'm just going to, if you are interested in the weeks, we'll talk, we can talk about it after this or another time. Um, but I'm just going to ignore the weeks and just focus on the anointed one, which is definitely Jesus. And I'll summarize the whole situation on the weeks to say it's very clearly the seven weeks um, and then the 62 weeks and then the one week and a half week, all end up with Jesus. Everyone's very clear that Jesus is the end of this, and the timing all works out. It ends up being basically a week is actually figuratively seven years, but and there's 490 years between this and Jesus. Jesus is the one coming, and he's anointed one. 
He's going to be cut off. Jesus, the anointed one's going to be cut off. Jesus was cut off on the cross. He died. But he made a new covenant. He shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And then what's going to happen? The sacrifices and the offerings are going to be put to, to an end. And there's going to come a desolation. Well, that's exactly what happened. Jesus died. He was cut off. He made a new covenant, a strong covenant with his people. And then there was a desolation where the temple was destroyed and there's no more sacrifices and offerings. So Jesus is this anointed one. He's the anointed one coming. They're looking forward to this. Jerusalem is looking forward to this. Another couple passages here about this anointed one. This one, I won't make you turn there because I'm sure it's very familiar to you. It's Psalm 2. It's quoted regularly in the New Testament. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The king of, kings of the earth set themselves against the rulers and take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, that's the Christ, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. But he who sits in the heaven laughs and holds them in derision, and he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the, the decree, and the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Notice the connection between anointed and the king, that the kings are not actually in control, that God has an anointed, the Messiah who's coming. He's going to be king of Zion. He's going to rule over. He's going to be the king of kings. A couple more verses here. This is Psalm 18. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, that's the Christ, to David and his offspring forever. There's going to be salvation. There's going to be this Messiah. He's going to be king. Another verse here, 1 Samuel 2.10. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth and he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. That's again real clear. The anointed and the king. He'll give strength to the king. What, what's another name for the king? To his anointed. And exalt the horn of his anointed. He's going to judge the ends of the earth. And so all this is to say that you can see this actually just in the story of the New Testament. Think about all the times when the disciples or others misunderstood the ministry of Jesus because they expected him to come and conquer the Romans. Remember that? They really, really expected him to come and conquer the Romans. And he didn't. He didn't do it the way they thought. He didn't conquer the Romans. He didn't lead an army. He didn't lead a rebellion. And yet, he did conquer the Romans. He did create, bring in a kingdom. It was a heavenly kingdom. Think about this. What does a king bring in? The king brings in a kingdom. Right? They're looking forward to this Messiah, this anointed king who's going to conquer the other kings and going to bring in a kingdom. I'm going to try and connect all these things together here, if you'll bear with me on this. When Jesus came, the work of Jesus, a lot of times we think of the gospel, what he did was he brought salvation to us individually. And that's true. He did that. He died on the cross so our sins could be forgiven. And when we hear Jesus Christ, we think about Jesus, the Messiah, the one who's going to take away the sins of the world. And that's absolutely true. That's true. But there's more to it than that. Jesus wasn't coming just for these disparate individuals, for you and you and you and you and me. He's coming for all of us and uniting us, making us a kingdom of priests. We're bringing us into his kingdom, and his kingdom is going to reign and actually end up conquering all other kingdoms. He's going to be the king of kings. All these other kingdoms are going to be brought to an end. 
And we could go into lots of examples of that. There's another prophecy in Daniel. Remember the statue of Nebuchadnezzar and the great rock that comes and destroys the statue? Those are all the same kingdoms that are in this other prophecy that we read about, about the beast. So if we're going to understand the Antichrist, this beast, we've got to know what the Christ is. And one, the first thing I want you to remember from what we already said is that Christ is king. He's the anointed king. He's the coming promised king. What is a king going to bring? The king is going to bring a kingdom. And a lot of times, I'm glad that we that it's clear in our minds that we're, we're washed by the blood of Jesus. We're saved individually. But we miss some of this larger... Sorry, wake you up because <laughs> I'm being so boring. <laughs> I should do that on purpose. Um, the, the larger picture of the kingdom. Jesus is bringing salvation to individuals and he's uniting a a kingdom here. Think about this. Here's Matthew 4.23. And he went, this is Jesus, throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. The gospel of the kingdom. Does the kingdom include us being washed and being brought in? Absolutely. But there's more to it than that. That the kingdom isn't just me and my individual life being fixed. Jesus is going to bring in the kingdom where every ruler, every government, every piece of the world that's not submitted to him is fixed and is destroyed and brought down so it can be rebuilt into the kingdom of Christ. You see the bigger picture there? Jesus is the Christ, the coming, conquering King. In my life, absolutely. But bigger than that in the whole world. You know, it's interesting because when we hear the word gospel or um, the word, the Greek word is evangelion, evangelion. I'm sure I'm saying it wrong, but um, good news, EU is good. And um, angel actually just means messenger. And so, um, good news. You can hear that angelion. You can hear the the root word there, like like the word even angel that we brought in from from the Greek. Anyways, um, into English. When we hear the word good news or evangelism, we don't really think of a kingdom. We just think of Jesus died for my sins, and that's true. That's a piece of the gospel. Um, but when the Greek first century believers heard the word good news, they thought of a kingdom. They, they literally were thinking, oh, good news. Um, there's a guy, Bauer, who basically what he did was he took all these Greek words in the New Testament and he was fluent in Greek and he, and he took all these references from the other writings that we still have today from, from ancient times and said, this is how it's used in the Bible, this Greek word, and this is how it's used in all these other the writings. And the, for the word of good news, even Galeon, it there's a lot of references. I'm going to spare you reading all of them. I'm going to summarize it for you. <laughs> good news often involved the news of a battle won. Some a battle would be won, and one guy would run off to bring the Evangelion, the good news. And the good news was we won the battle, or we captured the city. And there's lots of references. Many of the references actually bring people would 
like actually race to do this because a lot of times the person that brought good news would actually receive a reward. Like, ah, you're the bearer of the good news. And they'll reward, actually that person gets a reward uh, many times from the king. So there's lots of references to people being rewarded for bringing the good news of a battle won, of an en- enemy defeated. And so Jesus is bringing this good news of a kingdom. Who's the king? Jesus is the king. Jesus Christ, King Jesus is coming. To do what? We know from the Old Testament that he is going to be the big rock that breaks down all these kingdoms. That he is going to rule and reign. And so you can understand why in the New Testament, many of the Jews thought Jesus was going to come conquering right then. Because they were well read in the Old Testament. It's like, this is what was prophesied. Where's this big rock? Where's this anointed king who's going to break all these other kingdoms? Well, it was Jesus. He just did it in a way that they weren't expecting. And we've actually seen this over and over in Revelation. So I'm just going to read you some verses that we've already read, and now I want you to think in terms of what we just talked about. Jesus is the Christ, the anointed Messiah, the King, who's coming to bring what? To bring a kingdom that's in our own life, but also a bigger picture. He's going to rule the ends of the earth. Here's from Revelation 1. Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the King, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Okay, do you see that? The reason I took all this time and suffered through, I can see some of you are almost off to sleep here, Okay, but I'm going to put it all back together. The reason I went... I put all this in and took all this effort to talk about the Old Testament, to talk about the meaning of Christ being king, is now you see this whole connection throughout all of Revelation. Think about that. This verse now makes sense to you. Like, oh, I, I see why there's this list. That What he says next makes sense to me in my mind. And from Jesus Christ, Jesus the King, Jesus the conquering Messiah, what's it going to talk about next? The faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings on earth. Oh yeah, I know why it's talking about ruler of the kings on earth, because that's what the Messiah was going to do. That's what it means for Jesus to be the anointed Christ. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. How do we become a part of this kingdom? We have to have the cross. We have to be washed. We have to be brought in. And made a made us a kingdom. Priest to his God and Father. We're not just individually saved and that's it. We're individually saved to be brought into this kingdom, the kingdom of Christ, to be under his authority. He's our king. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Well, that sounds like a what you'd say about a king. Glory and dominion forever and ever. And that's exactly what people would say. Long live the king. You know, we even have that in English. Jesus is a king coming to, to gather citizens into his kingdom. Okay. Another verse here, Revelation 1.9. I, John, your brother and your partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So here again, I, John, he's a partner in what? In the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. All these things, this is where we're at. This is why we went through all this is where are we at? What's the bigger story? that we're a part of. There was a fall in Genesis chapter 3. At the very beginning of the Bible, 
we rebelled. We said, I don't want you to be my king. I want to be, I, we want to be kings ourselves. But we weren't actually the king, right? Remember the serpent was the one that tricked us. We had another king. Sin and death and Satan. And we were no longer in the kingdom of God. And God promised right then, the very first promise of the Messiah was that he would send a seed to crush the head of the serpent. That's the first promise of the Messiah. I'm going to send one of your seed, Eve, a single person, a promise delivered to crush the head of the serpent. And then throughout all these other prophecies, I won't go into all of them. You know, we could just spend the whole time on the list of prophecies of the Messiah, but the Messiah is going to come. He's going to be the conquering king, and he's going to put things right. He's going to be the suffering servant. You know, we, we read that um, a couple of months ago when, when, we talk, when we went back to Isaiah, but the reality is, is that Jesus came to put things right. Not just sin in our individual hearts, which he definitely did that, but to bring in this kingdom. To be the seed of David that is the king of kings. And where are we at? If we're trusting Christ, we've been brought into this kingdom. We need patient endurance. We need patient endurance because these beasts, these antichrists, the rebellion, the rebellion against God isn't over yet. It's one. Jesus defeated sin and Satan and death on the cross. But the battle is not over yet. The war is won, but the battle is not over. And so we need endurance. And that's why it's important to see this bigger picture, where we are, where we fit in. We're a kingdom of priests. One more verse here, and then I'm going to try and wrap this up. Remember in Revelation 5, I'll read you a section here. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed a people for God from every tribe, language, and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign, which is what a king does, on the earth. We're going to reign under Christ. And I looked and heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders, a voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads, saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and, and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne, the throne, right? Who's on the throne? Who's the king? The Lamb, to the Lamb, blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And all the elders fell down and worshipped. Okay, the revealing of Jesus. Jesus Christ, that's the book of Revelation. Jesus Christ means Jesus the King, Jesus the Messiah, who's bringing in what? Bringing in a kingdom. What's the kingdom going to conquer? All these corrupt governments of the world. Every government is going to fall. Every, not just government, but every piece of the world that was corrupted by sin and Satan and death is going to be put under the feet of Jesus and put right. And that's, you know, again, we talked about it with the seventh trumpet. The seventh trumpet is the end. The end's going to come. How does it describe it when we went through Revelation 11? This is what happens after the, the trumpet. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. He shall reign forever and ever. See how that all makes sense? Now that we really see what we're talking about when we talk about Jesus Christ. What's going to happen in the end? The kingdom of the world is no longer in rebellion. It never, no longer has its own agency to rebel against God. It's become the kingdom of our Lord 
and of his Christ, of his anointed king. And he shall reign forever and ever. It's not going to stop. And so what do, we, what do we say? We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who was and is, who is and was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. Okay? This is what we're looking forward to, and this is what the Jews were looking forward to in the Old Testament. This is what we're looking forward to, and we see even more of the reality of it than they did. And why does this, why does this matter? I'm going to try and apply it to our lives. Jesus is king, and if you're a Christian, you are his servant. You're a participant in the kingdom. This really matters in how you see your life. One big thing is it brings humility. Is our is the purpose of our life for us to get noticed, for us to have the victory, to have um, you know numbers here in our church, or people to notice you at your job, or whatever it is, notoriety? No. The purpose of our life is just to do what God wants us to do. We're just servants to the King. We want God to be noticed. We want God to get the glory. We want Jesus to get the glory. And we want to do whatever He's asked us to do wherever He's put us. Because He's the King. It's not a good servant that says, yeah, I'd like to serve you. You can be my King. You can be my commander in the battle. And He says, go here. And you say, I, I know he, he told me to go here, but... That doesn't have a lot of glory. Nobody's going to be able to see me if I'm back here doing this. I want to be out front. (laughs) That would be bad, wouldn't it? That would be a bad servant. But don't we sometimes forget? We kind of make ourselves the center of the story and forget, I need to be doing what God wants me to do. My whole purpose is to serve Him. He's the King. He gets the glory. I'm just a servant. And if He wants me to be over here, I'll be over here. Right? Right? God might send you, and just like a commander in a battle, might send you to a place where you're not going to get the glory and you're going to lose. <laughs> right? There's times in, in you know things that come to my mind are things in World War II where we lost tons of lives just trying to keep one Japanese island because like we this is the only place we can land for 200 miles. We've got to keep, I think it was Iwo Jima, one of the deadliest battles you know in World War II because we had to keep this territory in. If your commander said go and fight, probably not going to get glory. You might lose. You might die. But why are you going? Why are you listening? Because it's not about you as an individual. It's about the larger picture. Right? And that's where we are. There's times where God has asked us to do things that are hard. That, I mean, if you're a parent, there's a lot... you. Our world and our culture does not put highlights on the news like, look at this mom up in the night changing diapers. <laughs> right? Nobody, that doesn't happen. Um, it's like, look at this sports team, you know, you know, doing this wonderful thing. There's just things that God has asked us to do that aren't glorious, but they're where he wants us to be. He's our king. It's not about us. It's about him. And so we can just submit. We can just say, if at the end of my life it doesn't look like there's this big, you know, we could say it this way, if I don't have a big funeral and people aren't saying a bunch of good things, so what? Did I do what God wanted me to do? Was I a good servant to the king? That's okay. That's enough. Because the end goal isn't people noticing me, it's people noticing Jesus about his kingdom advancing. And if I can be a part of that, that's all I want. 
wouldn't want it the other way anyways. Jesus is a king and you're his servant. You're a participant in the kingdom. That's humbling, but it's also an honor, right? Humbles us and exalts us, right? Think about that. On the one hand, people might not notice these things that you're doing, and that's okay. But yet, who is going to notice? Jesus. How much better for him to say, good, well done, good and faithful servant, and to see you doing what he wants you to do where you are. I mean, think about how thankful the commanders were that people stayed. Even knowing, this this looks like a losing battle, (laughs) but I'm going to stay because we need this. And I'm going to do all I can because this is where I'm supposed to be. We get to be servants of a king and be seeing his kingdom come. Be participants in that. And that's an honor. Okay, that's one way we can apply it. Think about it this way. This is another example. I think I shared this recently, but I'll share it again. You're a servant to the king. It can help defend you against criticism. Think about this. If you're doing what God wants you to do and somebody comes up and says, I wouldn't I just don't think you should be doing it that way, you should be doing it this way, and you know, whatever whatever they say. If you know you're doing what God wants you to do, you just say, I'm doing what I think God wants me to do as best as I know how. And you move forward. You can move forward because you're not you're not living your life for other people's approval. You're living your life for Jesus. A couple more applications to this understanding that Jesus is king. It makes obedience a clear decision. Here's this verse in Luke 6. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? That's what Jesus says. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, you know, Master, Master, and not do what I tell you? If Jesus is king, it's just clear. We just obey him. There's no decision. There's no like, should I do this or should I not do this? It's Jesus is our king. We just obey. We just need to obey whatever he says. He's our Lord. We don't pick and choose. We just obey. Every day. Kind of nice to have that decision, you know, out of the way, isn't it? You don't want to have too many decisions each day. One that we can set aside, like, no matter what, no matter how the results, no matter how hard it looks, no matter what happens, I'm just going to say, whatever you say, Jesus, I'm going to do it. If it's hard, if it's painful, whatever. I'm just going to obey you because I've got to at least have this. <laughs> Jesus is my king, and I'm just going to obey him. We just do it. Some other ways we can apply this that affects our life. Jesus is king, not just over our lives. He is, he's a conquering king. Think about the peace that this is, that we can find in this. One day, Jesus is going to conquer all of sin. There's not going to be any more sin in the earth. We're not going to be all these things that are so painful and hard throughout your life and your day and your week. We're just going to be able to sigh of relief. There's not going to be any of that anymore because Jesus is going to conquer all of sin. That's in our own hearts, and that's out in the world as well. Praise the Lord for that. Jesus is going to conquer the corrupt rulers and governments. A lot of time and energy and words and worry are spilt on politics, huh? Think about that. 
Jesus is going to conquer all that. We're going to know that taxes are going to be just exactly perfect and right for every person <laughs> when Jesus is king. No more worry about that. There's a lot of anxiety and heartache, and rightly so. There's sin all over the place. But one day it's all going to be put going to be done and we're going to have a perfectly just and right and righteous ruler Jesus that's good news Jesus is going to conquer and unite every tribe tongue people and language disunity is going to be conquered There's, Jesus is going to be the conquering king that unites all, all the division that's been going on in the world all these wars and arguments and thousands and thousands and millions and millions of arguments that have been had and disunity over a million different things Jesus is going to conquer all that. And he's going to put it right. And there's going to be people from every tribe, tongue, and nation all in agreement. Jesus, you're king. You're worthy. We're going to listen to you. And in that, we're going to have unity. Jesus is going to conquer sin. We could say it this way. Sin, Satan, and the world. Everything is going to be put under him. All futility, suffering, pain, sickness, death, physically, spiritually, emotionally, interpersonally, every single piece of the fallen world is going to be conquered by Jesus. And that's a sigh of relief too, isn't it? Aren't we glad? And then finally, what does this all lead us to? The same thing, Revelation, worship, right? Who is worthy to be king of the whole world? Isn't it Jesus? Isn't it? What's the type of ruler you want? The type of ruler that takes the lowly position to suffer and die because he loves his people. Right? That's good news. If Jesus is the king that's going to put everything right, aren't we glad he, he is exactly the type of king we would want? Worthy, Think about these things. Worthy are you to rule, to reign. Power and might and wisdom. Jesus is just the kind of king we want. We can worship. When we say Jesus is king, we're worshiping. We're saying, you're worthy. Not only are you king, you're worthy of being king. We've got a king that came down and talked to a Samaritan woman at a well. Even when people said, why are you doing that? <laughs> Think about that. He's a king that values even the lowliest. That's a good king. And we're going to look at examples of you know, antichrist or you know, opposite examples that did the opposite, that don't. We've got to, we're going to have a king that loves us and values us, died for us, who's fully just, who who's calls out injustice. We can just summarize it by saying this. Jesus is going to be a good and perfect king. Okay, that's everything. Just one summary statement. Jesus is the Christ, which means Jesus is the King. All these contrasting antichrists are to show the goodness of Jesus the King, the anointed Messiah who will reign and who is reigning. And one day, even though we're battling it out right now, Jesus has already won the victory. And so we endure, we trust, we obey, and we rest and worship. Uh, in the meantime, and this is where we're at in our in history, in the larger story. And even though this doesn't seem like a big deal, it is, because if you if this is really clear in your mind as you go throughout your life, you know you can orient yourself where you are in the midst of history and things that actually make sense. Make sense why there's so much stuff freaking. Makes sense why things are the way they are in the world. And we can also look forward to knowing what's going to happen. 
knowing that Christ is going to put it all right. So again, this is kind of a very long introduction <laughs> to make so next week when we go through the whole of Revelation 13 that you'll see, oh yeah, it absolutely makes sense that these beasts are kingdoms and that Jesus is the true king. And that when it says Christ, it's very clear that it means the coming Messiah King. And so I think it'll help tie these things together. All right, well, we better cut it off here, especially because we're going to be going to the jail here shortly. So appreciate your prayers on that. Maybe we could just pray for that um, as we close here. Father, we are just thankful that you sent your son, um, Jesus. We're thankful that you're our king and that we're a part of the kingdom. And we just pray for the jail. Uh, We want to see more people brought into your kingdom and under your rule and reign and um, living for you and living under your um, forgiveness in your blood, but also um, under your authority to go out and do what you have us to do. We pray that that would be the case for people in the jail. You would save men and women there uh, that really need you, um, who are in bondage, uh, and the... The rule of this world has really made a mess of their lives. and But you can put it right, and we're just asking that you would. I pray you'd help in the jail. Just give us uh, words to speak and a love for people. Thank you for our church. I pray for the um, fellowship time after this. Just thank you for every individual person here. I pray that the uh, fellowship time would be good. Honoring to you, I pray for all of us uh, this week, that we would just really find comfort and joy and courage in looking to you as our King and living out whatever you have us to do this week. Um, We do worship you, and we say you're worthy to reign, and we're so looking forward to you coming again and putting everything right, that there would be um, an end to sin and, and all these, the effects, all the downstream effects of that. Thank you for this plan that you had from the beginning of the world to put everything right and to um, be our Savior, Redeemer, our King, and we're just thankful. Amen.